Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, where industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Before we get started tonight, I'd like to share how you can uh, get one of these very nice new Real Science Exchange t-shirts. I'll stand up so you can see it, get that microphone out of the way. Uh, very nice indeed. It's got our logo on there. Uh, yours will look better on you than it does on me. I got a bit of a food blister going on here that kind of stretches things out. So don't worry, it, it, it'll look pretty good. Um, the way you can get one of these is very simple. Three steps, either uh, subscribe, follow, or like the Real Science Exchange podcast on your uh, favorite podcast platform or on YouTube. Then send it to, uh, take a screenshot and send it to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Include your name, shirt size, mailing address, and that's it. We'll send you this, uh, this cool t-shirt. And uh, we've got plenty of them, so uh, looking forward to sending those out. This week's podcast is a continuation of one of our most highly attended webinars in 2021, discussing the bioavailability of minerals and the impact that has on animal performance. In fact, that webinar had nearly 500 people join us live and in person. And to date, over 600 people have viewed the webinar on our YouTube channel. If you'd like to go out and listen to it yourself, uh, you can find that recording at balchemanh.com slash real science and scroll down to the past webinars. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts for the Real Science Exchange. Tonight, we're welcoming, welcoming Dr. Bill Weiss from The Ohio State University to the pub. Good evening, Bill, and thanks for joining us tonight. Good evening. So, Bill, what's in your glass? And then tell us, uh, how did you get into researching minerals? Well, I don't have a glass. I have a bottle. And okay. it's spot, spotted cow. Okay. I've, I've got a... a my, my former graduate student from Wisconsin, so I'm honoring him. <laughs> I, my, when I was, I did my undergrad at Purdue, and as an undergraduate research, I don't even know what the title was, I, I worked on a selenium project with dairy cows. So that would have been in the mid-70s, so I've been doing mineral research since about 1978. And then when I got to uh, OSU to do my PhD, my advisor then, uh, Dr. Conrad, gave me some great advice and he said, don't become too specialized. So he said, you need to learn more than just, I was doing a protein study for my PhD, but he said, you need to learn more than protein. So I started reading, he did a lot of work on minerals, so I followed what he did and then it just progressed from there. Oh, excellent. When, when did you arrive at Ohio State? I started my PhD would have been in 81. Uh, I graduated in 85. I went to North Dakota State for about two years. My old advisor's job, oh, he retired, opened up. They asked me to apply and uh, the rest is history. So mm. been back since 88. All right. Well, I graduated from there in uh, 81. So we, we missed each other. Um, I see you brought a guest with you here tonight. Uh, would you mind introducing who that is? It's, uh, I have to say formally here, Dr. Matt Faulkner <laughs> with only one T. Um, but he was my second to last graduate student. I retired here a couple months ago, but he was my second to last one, PhD student. He did his, his project was on trace minerals. That's why I thought he'd be a really good fit for this uh, program. He's currently, I don't know the exact title, but he's a nutrition 
consultant for Purina up in uh, Wisconsin uh, area. I, I think he gets into Illinois as well. And he, he's been there a couple of years. He graduated, I, I'm guessing, like five, six years ago now. Time flies. So, Correct. 2016, we graduated. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing Matt with us. Matt, uh, what are you drinking tonight? And uh, also, what was one of your favorite memories or stories that you have from your time at Ohio State with Bill? So I, I'm drinking a little bit of Gentleman Jack, uh, double charcoal mellowed. And the glass is actually a Jack Daniels glass and was a, uh, a gift from a former peer, Dr. Benjamin Wenner, who is at The Ohio State University right now as a professor. Um, favorite story about Bill, like, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about this a little bit here, but it, it actually, it's a story that uh, Bill or a study that Bill had referenced in his talk um, when we did the fecal microbiome analysis. And, and I remember coming to Bill with the original, um, you know, kind of data is just saying like, hey, you know, we, we found uh, a few different things in these fecal microbiomes. And one of them was the um, the, the spirocatesiae or spirocatete and spirocatesiae family of bacteria that were different. And then obviously, like I dug into them a little bit further and I realized that this is the same bacteria that that goes along the lines of syphilis in humans. And, and Bill, not many people know, he has a, a great personality. Um, his his one-liners are, are epic. He was like, well, it's a good thing that you were wearing a sleeve when you took those fecal microbiomes uh, samples. <laughs> <laughs> just just one of those things had to make me chuckle. <laughs> Excellent. I love those old stories. Uh, Dr. Zimmerman, my co-host on The Real Science Exchange, is back with us once again at his usual stool. Clay, how's the hard cider going down today? It is good. And in honor of Bill, I have a mug here he might recognize. Yes, yes I do. So. <laughs> Very nice. Very so, nice. Scott, what are you drinking tonight? I'm having, I'm kind of in a rut. I'm, I'm back to uh, Four Roses Small Batch. Uh, again, one of my go-tos. But uh, I like it, so I'm going to stick with it for a while. Well, let's jump right into it with uh, a question that is likely on everybody's mind. Um, Bill, since you're on the dairy NRC, what changes can we expect to see in minerals when the new NRC comes out? I can't be specific because I can't say anything to what's actually out because th things can change at the last minute. But I'll just say we, we reviewed everything published since you know, 2000 from the last one. We reevaluated a lot of the data they used in the last one with with newer statistical techniques. So there, there, it's not going to be revolutionary. It'll be improvements, fine fine tuning. We think more accurate in some cases. Some things obviously won't even change, but it it should reflect. I, I think most minerals will be just fine tuned and and will be more accurate. Mm. Can you give us an update on when you expect uh, to release the, the new NRC? It's They have a very strenuous review process, and it's gone through the first thing, and then now we have to satisfy, a, a, they call him the, re, the study monitor. He's a third, third party who looks at what we told the reviewers and decides whether we answered the questions or not. And we've addressed about, he's, he's finished about half the book. So half the book's been approved. Uh, I got another chapter this morning, actually, uh, from him. So we have a Discover conference, I think, the end of August. It's everything is looking for it should be done. 
it may not be in print because printing takes a while, but it will be done and, and maybe the electronic version will be available by then. Yeah, that was my understanding as well is that you guys would be reviewing um, those at the next Discover conference there in, I think it's either late August or early September. Uh, to kind of let everybody in on a secret, uh, Bill is scheduled, assuming everything goes as planned, to actually present uh, on the Real Science Lecture Series the new dairy uh, NRC for minerals, and that'll take place on September 15th. So mark that down on your calendar, September 15th. Dr. Weiss, uh, New Dairy NRC for Minerals. Uh, Dr. Weiss, during the webinar, you stated that it's very difficult to determine mineral absorption. What are the key factors impacting mineral absorption? Well, a source, obviously. Um, amount in the diet. That most minerals, there's some degree of regulation. So feeding more generally downregulates absorption. Um, cow status. You know, a cow that's deficient tends to be a very efficient absorber of minerals, whereas a cow in very good status is much less efficient. Um, and diet, you know, there minerals have all, all, most nutrients, but minerals especially, there's a lot of antagonists. So what is it the absorption coefficient for copper in one diet? You, you throw some distillers in another diet with high sulfur, you're going to get a different absorption coefficient. So it's it's not it's a lot more complicated than people think and there's no way we're going to be able to do enough experiments to quantify all these all these interactions so there is going to be always some some educated guesswork in mineral supplementation so can can you expound a little bit on the the whole role of antagonists and and what are some of those what are some of the ones that that, that nutritionists specifically need to be uh, wary of and take into account when they're uh, putting together dairy rations well the two real you know, one we can put together diets that are antagonistic that are not practical um, but the real world antagonist the probably the biggest one is potassium and magnesium and May, potassium, even fed below requirement, still antagonizes magnesium absorption. So you, you don't have to be high in, high in K. And if, if you are higher in K than requirements, and most dairy diets are, we have to take that into account. The other biggest one in the real world is copper. Um, high sulfur, I should say high sulfate. Um, antagonizes and we, we're not sure if high sulfur from from organic sources such as methionine antagonizes or not but high sulfate clearly does uh, that's in distillers a, a lot of the sulfur in distillers is actually sulfate it's not methionine uh, water can be a really high source of sulfate and forages now if if you're fertilizing with say ammonium sulfate which has become more and more common those forages are actually are high in sulfate. And then the, the molybdenum one. And, and molybdenum by itself isn't a major antagonist of copper. It does can induce molybdenum toxicity, which mimics copper deficiency. But, but molybdenum plus sulfur is highly, highly antagonistic. But sulfur by itself is also antagonistic. And then other things like high iron can antagonize zinc, uh, copper, and even manganese, but it has to be pretty high. So in, in the real world, that's not a biggie, but it can happen. 
very high zinc can antagonize copper, but again, in the real world, that's likely not gonna happen. Um, high phosphorus antagonizes manganese, uh, sulfur antagonizes selenium. There's just a plethora of antagonists. But again, in the real world, worry mostly about copper and magnesium. Hmm. So talking about the real world, let's, let's, uh, let's go over to Matt. Matt, how are you dealing with uh, antagonists in, in your new job? Well, you know, and, and Bill set the plate very well. Um, you know, well, so the, the USDA crop report came out yesterday, and uh, I don't know if you followed the markets too much, but uh, soybean, soybean meal, and corn were all limit up. Um, so when that stuff limit up, um, we need to be looking at alternative um, protein sources when we're feeding dairy cows. One of the things that's always been very prevalent is the distiller's grains. And, um, you know, like we, we can all talk about the, the butter fat exchange with the fat and the long chain fatty acids or unsaturated fatty acids that come into play when we're talking about components. If you want to talk real world, butter fat's not worth that much right now. So um, we don't talk about it, but the sulfur is uh, the real thing. We know that distillers grains and some of those byproducts um, that we like to bring in as replacements are high in sulfur. Um, so I, I would say this is a very fluid situation in what I do real world every day. Uh, when protein prices have been down the past two years, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't really come into play. But now we're talking, hey, bean meals, 425 bucks delivered into a farm. Um, and, you know, distillers grains before yesterday was about 225, you know, and there's obviously a little bit of change in, in the percent crude protein. But uh I think it's going to come into play more in the next year than it maybe has in the last two, because we're looking at feed costs and income over feed costs. So I think it's uh, the sulfur thing is, is become very real. And at least in the, the sector that I work in, uh, which would be Southwest Wisconsin, Northern Illinois and Eastern Iowa, I don't really run into the molybdenum, molybdenum as much for the thiomolybdate formation of the, the molybdenum sulfur and copper um, formation. But um you know, as, as we pump more sulfur into these diets, when we're looking for lower cost crude protein options, I think it's going to come into play more than maybe I've ex experienced in my five years in the industry. So, you know, it, it all becomes about the safety factors that uh, Dr. Weiss talked about in his deal, like uh, in his talk, it's, hey, we, we need to have a, a, a strong safety factor um, to make sure that we're accounting for those. And, and don't forget about water. Uh, Dr. Weiss and I had a, an off-the-book conversation last night or off-the-recording off conversation just about some, some of the differences that can happen with water turnover, whether you're dealing with table water, or pond water, or different things, um, and some of the changes that I've experienced or switches that I've experienced um, in the industry. So, you know, I, I guess um, it, it's an ever-fluid situation in the dairy nutrition world. We, we go with price. Everything's about income over feed costs. And as these margins start to shrink, you look for ingredients that can replace your standard ingredients at a lower cost and you still don't affect performance. But when we start doing that, you need to take in these little nuances such as um, the trace mineral and even the macro mineral and especially the antagonist, uh, antagonistic effects that these can have um, that could result in larger problems down the road. So Matt, what do you specifically do if you find you've got a lot more sulfur coming into the diet? Is you just simply elevating the, the, the mineral uh, quantity? I, I think first and foremost, you need to identify where the sulfur source is coming from. 
um, you know, there, there's differences in the sulfur types and the sulfur form. So is it, is it coming from water? Like, I think the sulfur in water is fairly highly available. You, uh, I, Bill kind of did a nice job of laying out in his talk that there's a difference between a charged mineral and a non-charged mineral in terms of the antagonistic effects. So is it a charged mineral that you think that you're dealing with? Um, and, and somebody better in chemistry could talk to you about ferrous or ferric or sulfate and sulfite and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think it's identify where they are. And sometimes dilution is the solution. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if I think that they're coming from the forages, do I really believe that that's a, a, a you know, a positively charged or, neg or excuse me, negatively charged ion state that is going to tie up the positively charged chase minerals? Um, so, I, again, I think every diet is different. Every farm is different. And, and for that aspect, every geographical location is different. So it becomes like specifying what I think I have, what I think I'm fighting, and then how am I going to overcome that? The simple answer is to overfeed. Um, you know, I think Bill's recommendation in his talk was, uh, you know, 1.2 is a very convincing safety factor. You know, with something like copper, it can be very detrimental in that maximum, maximum tolerable limit. Um, where you don't want to have too much accrued in the liver. We know it's stored in the liver and then in the stress event um, can be mobilized and start lysing red blood cells. And that's just not good for anybody. Um, so it's, it's choosing the nutrient that you think is deficient, identifying where you think it's coming from, and then making the correct adjustments over. Mm -hmm. So, so sticking with that mineral topic, and I'd, I'd like to hear from both of you on this, but Bill, we'll start with you. How, so, uh, how much sulfur should be in our diets, you know, as on the minimum side, and how much is too much? Well, something, you know, a dairy cow really does not require inorganic sulfur. There's bacteria do. Rumen bacteria need sulfur. And so when we look at things like intake, fiber digestion, things that the rumen bugs uh, affect, we come up to levels around 0.2, 0.25% total sulfur. That's, you know, that, that, a lot of that is methionine and cysteine. Some of it is inorganic, but a lot of it is in the protein fraction. And levels in that range, you know, 0.25, not an issue. And, and 0.3 even, I'm going to make a few little twerk, tweaks if I can't adjust. You know, I'd like to feed sulfur does other things bad other than just antagonize some minerals. But if I can't, I have to feed a 0.3% sulfur diet. I'm going to bump up copper a little bit. I'm probably going to uh, feed some organic copper. I might feed some some buffer to get the decad up where it should be because, you know, sulfur sulfates in the decad equation. But at 0.3, I'm not going to get too excited. But when it starts getting above 0.4, that's when it becomes much more difficult to to adjust around it. And remember, this includes water. You're going to have to estimate water intake, the sulfur in the water, and add that into the diet. In most cases, water is marginal in, in sulfur. You don't have to worry about it. But, you know, if it's if it's 900 ppm sulfate, you, you've got to worry about that. So, And I would agree with Bill and uh, in, in most aspects of that statement. Um, and, and I look at, so part of my job is not only to feed cows, but also to support um, other staff that are feeding cows. Um, and I have no concerns until we start seeing 0.3% um, sulfur in the just diet itself. 
Um, and, and I don't disagree with what he said in the, the 0.4% with water, uh, but most people don't check water. It, it's one of those unforgotten nutrients, yet the most important because, well, milk's 86% water. Um, so if it's under 0.3% in the diet, I typically don't worry unless there's things that are telling me that I need to worry about it. Um, and that means that I'm probably not going to make too many, too many mineral adjustments. That being said, Bill brought up a great point about buffers. Um, I, I don't see many diets, if any at all, um, that don't have at least a half a pound of sodium bicarb fat, or they've got free choice bicarb, um, uh, on the farm somewhere. Um, so at 0.3% is kind of that, that flagship for me. And, and if we start getting that 0.4%, and then this is obviously outside of the pre-fresh diet, because we have all of these different, um, DCAD products that are sold that can sometimes drive those up. But again, it's also, I think it's, it's very important to look at the specific ingredients. Like where is that sulfur coming from? Um, you know, am, am I feeding a large amount of distiller's grains? And then you also need to assess what are your issues? Like, why do I think sulfur is an issue? Do I think it's a mineral issue that is driving this? Or am I looking at a component response and I have a lot of distiller's grains and then it, it maybe goes down that unsaturated fatty acid? Or are we having some uh, metabolic issues or some immune function issues? So immune function typically points me in the direction of, I think we might be off something in the trace or the, the vitamin world. And then, so then I look down that antagonistic world where if it's, um, you know, maybe something more directed towards, it's a, it's a butter fat issue. Well, that might direct me more towards the fat side of things. So I, every situation is different. Um, and those flagships for me, it's, it's when we start in the lactating rations exceeding that 0.3%. Um, and then again, I made the comment before and, and, and Bill reiterated it that, uh, I, th I think everybody in the industry has done a better job of paying attention to water, um, but it's still often overlooked at the impact those concentrations of, of antagonistic minerals can have on the effect of a diet, especially when you start thinking a lactating high-producing cow is going to drink 30 to 40 gallons of water a day. And, and those, those mineral amounts might look minuscule. Um, when you're reviewing a water thing, but when you start putting them in at that level in the ration, they, they can really amount to, you know, 0 0.1, 0.2%. Yeah, Matt, does it make sense to, to uh, take the minerals out of the water before giving it to the cattle? How do you do that? <laughs> well, water softeners, right? I mean, I, I, I don't you, know if that's practical. Not at all. Uh, no. and you bring up a great point. Like I, I've seen so many different water systems, uh, you know, to the, these points where these guys filter, um, you know, into a big tank and do all do all the other stuff. And I mean, it, a lot of times it's a cost thing. At the end of the day, we were judged on our effectiveness on income over <laughs> feed cost. Um, I, I had a, a dairy in eastern Iowa that, I mean, they spent $150,000 on a water system to correct their iron and sulfur issues. And, you know, and they just bit the bullet and did it. Um, and then, you know, like there's all these peroxide treatments and then, um, some chlorine dioxides, but the really interesting thing about water is nobody has figured out a system that works for every farm and what works for one farm may not work for a farm that's two miles down the road because they're in a different, you know, water table or, you know, or they have different dietary ingredients. Um, you know, if you could come up with that, you could probably retire and, and <laughs> print those shirts and just 
just live a good <laughs> life. Um, so, you know, I think water treatment systems are, are very viable, um, but there's not a one catch all system. And, and I've, I've talked to these at great length with many different dairy farmers. And the, the thing is, is when you find one that works for your dairy, the one thing that I can honestly say is the most appreciable um, and immediate response that you can judge is components. Um, a few dairies have struggled with components and, and put in a, a good system that works. My, my brother's a dairy farmer and uh, the, the system that he put in, he had a peroxide system for many years, drilled a new well, blah, blah, blah. The peroxide system didn't work, went into an enzyme treated chlorine, chlorine dioxide system. And, uh, you know, like we, we put water in, or we put the treatment system in and we took it out just to assess the um, effectiveness of it. And there was about 0.15% uh, in butterfat component response within seven days of putting it in and taking it out. And we did this on a each, like about every three week basis um, across the four month span. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's some ways to assess it, but when you don't see responses and you spend all that money and trace minerals and deficiencies and excessiveness are, are very difficult to judge. And you want to talk to somebody about spending a hundred to $150,000 on a water treatment system annually. It's, it's extremely mm. difficult. Mm. Bill, uh, during the webinar, you talked a little bit about, um, uh, magnesium and the, the variability in magnesium. Can you uh, expound on that just a bit? <clears throat> a lot of people think magox is a mined compound. They just, you know, dig it out of the earth, but it's not, it's a manufactured product. And I don't know exactly how to make it, but they have to cook uh, ore at extremely high temperatures. Uh, I think it's magnesium carbonate, then it 1200 degrees or something to make magnesium oxide but don't don't quote me on that and that that process um, is is dependent on temperature and time you cook it too hot you the bioavailability is terrible if you cook it too at too slow of a temperature it's bioavailability is terrible too long too short um, it's it's not good so you know these companies, if they don't want, they know what they're doing and they're, you know, high quality control, they, they get it right and they get good, good bioavailability. But if they're just spitting out magox without the quality control, it can be from, you know, the best mag magox is probably 30% available. The worst is probably close to zero um, because of the, and particle size also plays in here, but the calcination temperature and time and and particle size are the major factors affecting availability and those are manufacturing processes I, so i've got a question on the the magnesium for bill here um i i was told this by by a peer uh about 30 years experience in the industry and it he he had once told me that like the higher the percentage of magnesium in the product you know magox is magox to him at this point, but he said, you know, if it's 56% versus maybe a 54% magox that you can almost um, guess that the 54% would be more available because they had to dry the 56% longer to remove the impurities. Uh, you know, any comments or thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I had that question. I don't know if it, was, it wasn't from you, but somebody else asked me that question <laughs> about a month ago. And I actually dug through the literature and there's one old, old paper that would 
do that, say that, that the 54 was had better availability than the 56. But another paper said just the opposite. So I won't say it's not a, not involved, but I'd say there's other factors that are much, much more important than just whether it's 56 or 54, um, this this particle size and calcination. But so I won't, I won't say one is uniformly better than the other one. I just don't, I don't know. So what's a nutritionist to do? Should they have it tested? And if so, how do you do that? That's another question I used to get almost monthly. Um, there are some field tests, and, and, and Jesse Goff's done a lot of magnesium work, and he has this, um, I don't know if he developed it or someone else, where you, you get magox, you put it in vinegar for a certain amount of time, and you measure pH. And if, if the pH um, goes up, fast, it's a more reactive and more bioavailable magox. And, and the the data correlating that uh, in vivo is, is pretty limited. So I don't know how it's, it's, there's probably a correlation. In other words, if it, if the pH never goes up from, you know, four, four and a half from what vinegar is, obviously the mag, magnesium isn't available. But I, I don't know if it's going to be able to separate, you know, average magox from great magox. It could separate junk magox from good magox, but you don't don't really know. So you know there are bio tests that you, you feed feed high levels of magnesium, collect urine, and, and measure magnesium in the urine, and that that you can use that. That's you know not really practical in the real world. Uh, so what I tell people is buy it from a, a supplier you trust, and there are there is some very good magnesium. You pay for it. There's some very good magnesium oxide out there. I think it's worth a little bit extra to know what you're getting. Mm -hmm. So, so a question on the science side for Bill on that, I, and I heard you mention that in your talk as well. Like, and this is this is a left field question. This is a grad student question um, that I would ask you, like in, in theory. I, so. I don't have to answer those anymore. You've graduated. So. <laughs> well, you're still the macro man, so I'm going to ask it. Um, you know, I realize there's a lot of buffering minerals that come through in the urine, but the urine should still be whatever pH in a lactating cow. Um, you know, and you talked about the the magnesium availability in urine, and if they're in excess, that that, that should be coming through in the urine. So is, is there any, you know, like the vinegar test, or is there any test like that that could be more of an applied test that you don't have to send off to a lab, don't have to spend the producer's money um, or your money on a tight margin to, to figure out? Uh, or is that something that, like, I've just come up with a research topic for the next grad student? It would be, you know, theoretically high magnesium urine. If you feed a lot of magnesium and it's available and it goes out in urine, the pH should be higher. But the primary or the one of the, I think it's primary, is, is potassium, is what really buffers urine. And there's so much K in these cows that I don't know if we could see a response under practical conditions. In other words, I don't know if you could feed enough magnesium to really alter that, the urine pH. So what would you call so much pot potassium? Like in a formulated ration, no, you well, know, like what percentage would you consider too high to? Well, to even, at, even at, you know, 1.2, 1.4K, almost, you know, K, K goes out, theoretically a cow is in K balance. It eats so much and it gets rid of so much every day. Milk is a big pool. But the rest, almost the rest of it goes out in urine. And so even, you know, modest amounts, there's still a lot of K in urine, and that's a good buffer. 
And that's why I'm just saying, I don't know if you can change the acidity of urine enough with magnesium to, to detect what you're wanting. It, it Theoretically, it could, but I just don't know if it's sensitive enough. Perfect. Not real practical, but if you go collect some cows, I don't know how many, but some cows, send it to a lab for magnesium. Uh, and then I'd probably analyze minerals, okay, because you need to adjust for uh, urine excretion somehow. And we have a, a test in research labs that I don't think is practical. But I think if you do something like the magnesium decay ratio um, of cows fed the same diet except for magnesium, everything else has to be the same. And if if you're testing, if you got two magox and you want to see is this one any good, you feed the two different magoxes at, you know, you got to get it up to maybe 0.4 magnesium. Look at the K magnesium K ratio, and if they're the same for both, the bioavailability is the same. But if if one of them has, it won't be this extreme, but 50% more magnesium than the other one, it's it's clearly a superior source. So you can kind of, you, you can't really quantify it, but you can qualitatively evaluate sources. It's not easy, but you can do it. Well, so, I'd maybe say you taught me too well because I don't run any magnesium diets below 0. 0.4, 0.45. <laughs> and I don't think you're, you're, you're in good shape. Uh, it's, I think, too much, but it won't hurt them. It's just, to me, I, I'd put something else in its spot, but it's, it's, it is not hurting. Well, and, and, and like I, I remember the, the discussion. I won't call it a lecture because you weren't yelling. Uh, but, you know, the discussion of was like, you know, Magox is, is, is fairly cheap in the grand scheme of things. And obviously source varies, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, like and I, I've experienced magnesium deficiencies in, in fresh cows. And and early on in, in my professional career, I just realized that, like, hey, the few cents that I can spend on magnesium is is, is well worth not having to deal with the headache. And I, you know, I think NRC 2001, uh, we'll see where 2000 and well. You guys are in 21. Maybe you'll make 22. Yeah, 21. Uh, 21. So. <laughs> uh, you know, can, can come out. But, uh, you know, I think it was 0.35 maybe. You know, it, it, obviously it's nutrient concentration, yeah. which is relevant or not. Um, but, you know, like it, that that extra little bit of magnesium, it's it's 0 0.2, 0 0.25 pounds is, is minimal compared to the headaches that we get when we don't run them that high. And I think that's an important thing here is, you want to overfeed and the of any mineral and the degree of overfeeding, you know, consider cost and then you got to consider risk. And like I said, with magnesium, there's no risk of excess at 0 0.4, 0 0.5%. No, no risk at all to the cow. If you were talking copper at that degree of overfeeding, there's a significant risk to the cow. So look at these things and it's if the cost isn't appreciable, you're going to say, I don't want to worry about being deficient it's not worth my time then you, you overfeed but think about risk and and cost and it's magnesium is one where i'm not going to fight with argue with you that it should be less i a mine would be less but not that much less it's still going to be substantially higher than the old nrc requirement what i feed substantially higher but i would never do that with copper never never go that much higher because the risk is too high on the excess side so, Bill, back back to the, the lab testing you were talking about a minute ago with magnesium. You're talking about analyzing the, the urine in the lab? Yeah. 
okay. you'd have to send it in for mineral analysis, you know, wet chemistry mineral analysis. And the things I, you know, in, when we do research, we've got a lot more control. We would do that assay five cows per treatment. But we have a whole lot more control than in a, in a, on a commercial farm. So I don't know how many cows you would need to get a reasonable or an accurate at, number. I don't know. At the, at the end of the day, you're not going to have any control on the farm because they're going to feed the same level across. <laughs> yeah. so, so, Matt, make sure you wear your sleeve for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you, don't, you don't want to bring anything home. And, you know, if you're really concerned about magnesium, not so much on relativeness, but you're saying these cows might be marginal in magnesium, you can collect urine and just measure magnesium. If there's none in it, you're not feeding enough. You're, that's, there's no question on that. Because, you know, the cow should be excess magnesium is ends up in, in urine. And if you have no magnesium in urine, you're at the edge. So feed more. So that can be used if you're thinking there's might be magnesium issues. Guys, uh, kind of switching gears just a little bit, kind of taking a look uh, into our crystal balls. You know, I think uh, mineral excretion, uh, what goes out in the land is becoming under greater scrutiny. Um, what are we going to have to do, you know, 10, 15 years from now? And I don't know that it's necessarily improving bioavailability. Maybe it is, but, but, but it's optimizing, you know, the mineral utilization. So what you put in the cow you utilize it and it does, and you minimize what's coming out the backside of the cow. Looking into your crystal ball, what, what kind of any, any clues in terms of what technologies that might employ, what directions we might go, how we might solve this, uh, this problem? Well, you know, it's what goes out in manure is a function of availability. You know, unavailable mineral has to go out in feces, but you got to remember all maintenance minerals ends up in feces, all of it. It's just used and, and goes out. We can't do a thing about that. Um, and then the other thing we have to remember with minerals is they do things in addition to just the stuff NRC accounts for. You know, there, it helps maintain pH in the rumen. That's not a requirement any place in NRC, but it's definitely needed. And that's going to be at a require at a concentration higher than NRC. So. You know, we can improve bioavailability and that will help some, but it, it's not going to do a lot just because of where all this stuff comes from. The biggest thing, if, if, if mineral excretion is an issue, the biggest thing is just feed, don't go overboard. That's, you know, some minerals I don't think will ever be an issue. Magnesium, calcium, these are not going to be environmental mm -hmm. issues. Phosphorus is in certain areas. It's not mm -hmm. everywhere. It's got to be a water thing or close to surface water. Um, the trace minerals, maybe. But trace minerals are so poorly absorbed. Even the best trace mineral is so poorly absorbed. I, that we, and that we're just going to have to feed closer to reduce the excess feeding. But or, or the other option, and oftentimes this is the cheapest option, is use manure properly on soil. You know, don't just dump it on the five acres or ten acres next to the barn. You know, move it, and that's that's oftentimes to me the with with phosphorus. You know, 
uh, Matt brought up distillers is, is a reasonable source of, of nutrients, reasonably priced. It's high in phosphorus. You know, uh, it, maybe we should just, you know, if we, if we could sell, make, make manure higher in phosphorus, it would make it more valuable to move. So I think manure management is really more important than nutrition with respect mm -hmm. to these, these minerals. Mm -hmm. And I think Bill hit a lot of those just, just spot on, uh, you know, and covered them uh, great. So like, the, but the interesting thing is, is, uh, you know, like here in the, the Midwest, we had tar spot run through, was uh, that 2019? So two, two corn silage crops to grow. Um, you know, and there was a large concern for, so tar spot was one of those little black things, like little black dots that comes along in the plant. And then as the plant died, it just dried it down within three days. You went from a corn silage crop that looked great and green. We're ready to go. Like we're ready to hit in that 35% dry matter to like, oh my God, it rained and I missed two days. And now I'm trying to like chop something that's like 45 to 50% dry matter. How am I going to process the corn? Um, you know, and then one of our largest concerns was, is like, how do we get it out of the soil? Um, you know, and actually like one of the, the best options was as well, like copper and those other nutrients that are a little bit volatile could actually end up killing it because it's not, we haven't had a hard freeze even this year, like here just recently, a month or 45 days ago, we had, uh, you know, temperatures in the negative 20 for over two weeks or zero to negative 20. Uh, but we had three feet of snow on the ground, which insulated it well. So we never had a deep, deep freeze. Um, so like, I, I think it's, it's a, it's a great balancing act. And, and from the science side and that science to applied nutrition side has really done a good job of acknowledging um, some of the, the overfeeding that we have done in the past, um, but also acknowledge the fact that there's better sources there. So we're trying to limit um, some of the overfeeding because we have more bioavailable sources, which is a primary focus of this conversation. So I, I think it's, it's kind of twofold. Um, a, some of that might be beneficial for the soil. And, and I think there was at least two or three labs two or three years ago that had abstracts at uh, ADSA that had said like, okay, even though like soil copper concentrations have come up, we didn't really realize uh, or notice or analyze a difference in the basal concentrations in the corn silage or the haylage. So uh, to Bill's comments, like, although they're there, they may not be bioavailable and coming up. And, and although they may uh, circulate back through the water pools, they're still not becoming volatilized and being taken up by the plant. Um, so those basal concentrations may or may not have changed. We at the research center here, uh, we're we're kind of limited on land. We can move manure some, but we we do just what I said we shouldn't do. We tend to concentrate <laughs> the dairy manure on the dairy fields, and we've been you know I've been at Ohio State for 33 years. We sample everything like crazy for 33 years. Our corn silage is eight parts per million copper, and it's been that way for 33 years. Mm -hmm. We feed reasonable amounts of copper, but we, we would be about 20 parts per million at the most. We're down now, but it, it hasn't changed one bit. Uh, we do use copper foot baths. Again, that goes into the lagoon, so that would be in a, be applied. But we, you know, it, it's we haven't seen anything on, at the research farm on trace mineral changes in the, the corn silage and the alfalfa. 
And I could say that would correlate through what I've seen in the industry. Um, you know, obviously being with Bill and, and focusing on a lot of that. And I, I think at some point we did the math on, uh, on copper sulfate foot pads and how much you'd have to do. Um, it, it's just really not an effect. What about phosphorus, Bill? We, we have a phosphorus issue. And again, when I started there, the, the phosphorus level on our forages, well, they're not that much higher. They, we've, we've, um, cut back on phosphorus like the rest of the industry we probably were when i started we were probably at 0.45 and now we're averaging probably 0 0.35 0 0.38 so we've cut cut back and you know we're shipping off more in milk but we haven't really noticed and i haven't looked at this for a little while but i haven't really noticed much change in phosphorus uh, concentrations in in corn silage alfalfa goes up and down a whole lot more and I don't know why, but there's much more very, so part of it is, is obviously maturity of, uh, at chopping, but that tends to be more variable, but I haven't seen any for any of the minerals, um, over time, just, they're, they're very constant on our corn silage. Okay. Hey, maybe to switch, switch gears here a little bit, the, um, Matt, I know this is part of your work, and Bill, Bill, you talked about this some during during the, the webinar. But uh, can you speak to how minerals can impact the microbiome? You do you want to start on that one, Bill, or do you do you want uh, me to go? You're the expert on that one. So, <laughs> well, so so I'm very thankful that actually before this conversation, I I, I had a conference call with Dr. Benjamin Winter, who helped with this. Uh, and then we had a nice heat, uh, a, a nice debate between peers. Um, so really, how this how this idea came about? Um, again, uh, Benjamin Winter was a student with Dr. Ferkins, um, and and they dealt with a lot of uh, microbiology things. And well, you drink enough beers with somebody, and 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 you, you would like to argue like I do, and and like Ben does, um, you, you start getting into these, but. That what really hit it off to me was um, Ben really was studying ruined microbiology. And uh, we, we started going back to, uh, I think it was uh, Dr. Church. It's a book that was published in the 1970s. Um, 75 was a lot of the, the, the research data from that. And it was talking about the toxicity of copper, the toxicity of zinc um, on the microbiome effect in the rumen, and then how it can get down to the hindgut and, and different things like that. And I was just like, well, like if, it, if it's affecting the room and it's got to be affecting um, the, um, the, you know, the lower colon. And um, so I was like, well, why is it toxic? Why is it not? And, and how do we assess that factor? Um, and, and it sounds like it's really jumped off since we got there. But Bill brought it up in his talk. Like zinc, it's probably not a factor. I think most of the research, even historically, is going to show you got to be 500 times um the the factor of zinc and and at at the end of the day when we really look at this like zinc's not that reactive even if you look at it on the periodic scale but like copper really is um and you know like you start looking at 1975 research we have different dry matter intakes different passage rates different all this other stuff but like that one really seemed to be the thing that could shock the room and so um and we all know um i i, I talk to dairy producers every day and like um most of them don't understand it 
uh, you know, to the to the depths when I start start talking about cellulitics, amulolytics, proteolytics, um, and, and then protozoa. But like, it's feeding to a healthy rumen. If you want a, a dairy cow that's going to produce and do well, you need to have a healthy rumen because it's all about VFA absorption um, and different thing like different things like that. So when we start looking at the microbiome, what are things that it can that can affect that? Um, and, and copper to me is, is one of those, it, it's a toxic ingredient. If it's that toxic to a whole animal at that such small amount, why wouldn't it be toxic to the bacterial population that, that, that allows them to do their job? Uh, so, uh, circling back to that paper, um, I don't understand much of the microbiome stuff. I'd still be a grad student in Bill's lab if it wasn't for Benjamin Winter and, and helping with the sequencing and the sampling and and the um, you know analyzing of that data. But I do believe that we're dealing with such you know it's bacterial cells in the rumen are charged, in the hindgut they're charged, and somewhere in between there they they shift different balances. So in the rumen we're at a fairly um, neutral pH. And then this is why mineral nutrition differs from a ruminant to a monogastric. Um, you know, it, it needs to get down to the abomasum, which is the true stomach, which is the acidic environment where we can disassociate some of those minerals. And then we have a two plus charged mineral that's ready to go into the proximal small intestine for a charged pickup by a transporter. And, and that's where it truly guys now, like, what is the limiting factor? Um, and I, I believe, Bill, you fielded this question during your talk. One of the things that you thought was limiting between our byproduct and our, our forage rations. And uh, you, you're right. When we, we formulated that byproduct ration, we did it with high pectins, high beta glucans, and things that we thought were differently charged, negatively charged from the mineral um, that would bind them coming out of the abomasum. But, like, often times that I think something that's forgotten in this is passage rate. Um, you know, it, it's how much time is spent in that abomasum. I've got, I've got a couple of dairies that are very high producing dairies, but moderately high producing. I'll say, you know, like if you look at the, the complete dairy, it's in, in the low nineties and their high group, you know, might be milking 140 pounds, but their, their dry matter intake is 64. If you want to look at that from a feed efficiency standpoint, that's a very, it's an extraordinary feed efficiency. Um, you know, then like there's maybe a couple dairies that are in that 94, 95, or, you know, even a hundred pounds where their high groups at 72. And then I go back and I start comparing these two. Well, what's different? Cause no dairy is the same and you need to uh, assess them differently, but what's wrong with taking them and looking at them as a group. A lot of times it comes down to me as like, it's the percent forage in the ration. And forage all isn't the same. Uh, you know, haylage reacts differently than corn silage. Corn silage is 30, let's call it 34% starch um, at the end of the day. So 34% of that forage I can consider as a concentrate. Now, if I look at haylage, haylage is to me 100% forage, you know, talk about ash and all the other stuff. So like, it, it's not only assessing what percent forage is but what percent type of forage am I and how does that affect the passage rate? Um, you know, a lot of these high-producing dairies are, are, at least in my area, you get into central northern Wisconsin or some of these other areas um, that they don't have as much access to byproducts as I maybe do in the, the southwestern Wisconsin, northern Illinois area that gets the Indiana, Chicago, 
um, food byproducts, like that changes the game. But I've got a lot of rations that are sub 45% forage, and we're still talking that it's five, six pounds of dry matter haylage, you know, 20 plus pounds dry matter corn silage um, that react differently than maybe a 55% forage ration because retention time in the rumen is different, um, <coughs> which their feed efficiency is in theory better. Um, so when I start look, assessing that from the mineral aspect, it's how much time is that mineral getting in the abomasum in that acidic environment to become available, to be available for those transporters. And then on the contrary, um, you know, if I want to be um, the devil's advocate is are those high forage rations spending too much time there um, post abomasmal that they can, they can bind with some of these negatively charged fiber particles. And I don't have a great answer for you. Um, Bill told me on my way to my defense that my favorite answer would be, I don't know. Um, and, and you're, th that's correct. I don't know, but I, I do know that I fortify low forage, high passage rate rations, um, higher than I do, um, higher forage, slower bypass rations, um, in terms of mineral fortification, especially on the trace side. Mm -hmm. Sounds like more research is required, Bill. Uh, yes. you, you can't Job security. Keep going for another twenty years. <laughs> yeah, so, what, what so Matt, I guess uh, I want to just follow up real brief here. What Matt said is is really important. You know, when I started this, a cow ate forty pounds of dry matter, hmm. and now they're sixty five pounds. And the cow has gotten bigger, but it hasn't got that much bigger. So the the rumen isn't that much bigger. The intestines aren't that much bigger. So this stuff is flying through this cow and it takes time. Everything takes time. And, and so what, what he said is, is on these really high intake cows, they may have to be fed totally different. And that none of that goes into any of these nutrition models with respect to minerals, none of them. And, and that's something no one's ever looked at. It's going to be really hard to do, but we don't discount, we, you know, we discount, digestibility of energy with high intakes. We change the RDP and RUP of diets based on intake. We don't do a thing with minerals because we don't know. We don't know how to do it, but I think that's a very important point that intake has to affect mineral availability. We just don't know how it affects it. So I know we're buttoning up on time and I've been itching to ask this question since we, we started and got in the introduction and I watched your talk yesterday, Bill. Um, I had a, a really great mentor um, at the Ohio State University that used to ask me this question all the time. And obviously it was a prelude to where NRC is going. And I don't think I ever answered it correctly. Historically, the NRC has been based off of body weight for maintenance. And, and, and you... Um, preluded in your talk to it's going to go to dry matter intake and and this parlays into our conversation that we just had on high intakes and low intakes and blah 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 when we spoke about it before it was well that that uh high producing dairy cow is going to eat more than your your median or your average so does that still hold true that like so essentially the trace mineral requirement is not going to change it, it doesn't matter concentration of diet it still matters milligrams or grams of intake so if i have uh, a diet and my high producing pen 
that's you know let, let's say it's a 70 percent dry or 70 pound dry matter intake and they're milking 140 pounds and my herd might be balanced at let's say 16 to 18 parts per million copper and i'm just using that as a reference nutrient does that mean that i can feed them at 14 because they're still gonna intake more milligrams i, I think you can for for those minerals that are not put out in milk in great quantities. Copper is one that you know doesn't go out in milk very much. So like zinc goes out in milk. So the more they milk, they need more zinc to, to go out in milk. But copper, manganese, they high intake high intake groups, the concentration could be less. Um, I that's you know, you could just do the math, but then again, that's leaving a constant availability. So it probably would be not quite as much less as what, say, NRC would calculate, but it would be less. So and dry cows would be a lot more. Some of these, these on a concentration basis in a dry cow diet should be higher than your high cow diet. Couldn't agree more. But so, so parlaying into that question, again, something I still can't answer to this day that you often ask is is so if i if we we always assess the amount of mineral that is excreted in milk that's excess right well they didn't it's i don't know if it's well it can be i shouldn't say you know if you fed at modest amounts the concentration for most of these are independent of diet for most of them if you start feeding extremely high levels then it's going to go out in milk some of it Copper, for example, if I feed probably between 10 and 20 parts per million in the diet, milk won't change hardly at all. If I start getting 40 or 50, then the concentration in milk will go up. As intake goes up, my oxidative stress goes in up, which then increases my requirement for glutathione peroxidase or you know, scavenging of oxygen radicals, which is zinc, selenium, vitamin E, copper base. Um, it, it, as a professional, and I don't know the answer to this question, which is why I'm asking you, the man, the myth, and the legend, uh, you know, am I safer in saying that I have the, the herd balanced at 16 parts per million copper total diet? That's not supplemental, total diet. If, if I'm hedging my bets, do I keep that high cal ration at 16 or do I have full confidence in thinking that I can run them at 14, which is still well above the 1.2% recommendation? It would be 14 would actually be pretty close to the requirement. That'd be pretty close. Um, so no, I'd probably feed more. Um, but you know, if you know, you're talking about, say, if if I'm just kind of making this number up, but let's say the a high cow, 14 parts per million would meet requirements, but for the medium group, you needed 16 because of the higher intakes. I want quibble and I just do 16 because I don't want all this other inventory and everything else to complicate the system. So some of this I wouldn't really worry too much about, but you, I'm saying you could do that. But again, it all gets down to risk. Um, if it was where you're going to get down to 10 or something, then I'd, I probably wouldn't go that low, even if the NRC said, yeah, this is fine. Like I said, theoretically, it's still milligrams per day, not concentration. 
And for those minerals that the, every, the amount in milk, the concentration in milk is, is minor compared to maintenance, then you, you could go, the concentration could be lower. Well, and in theory, just, just so we're, we're all clear and anybody that's listening is clear, like I, I'm not talking copper sulfate. I, I'm talking highly available. Um, you know, like they're going to claim two times as available as copper sulfate and I'll give them 150% on a good product. So like this, this would be more of the, uh, the or, organics or um, hydroxy type minerals rather than just copper sulfate. Mm-hmm. And again, we're really not talking, you know, when you do the math, we're not talking big between a high group and a medium group. We're not talking big differences in concentrations. And I'm going to say, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just saying you could, you could, but the thing that I think we do need to, that does matter is these dry cows, uh, that many of these are fed because they look at the concentration and say, well, this can't be right. Cause the high group it's 18 and I'm, you know, need 20 in my dry cows. That's, that's right. So dry cows don't eat very much and their maintenance requirement is almost the same as a lactating cow. So I, I, I'm going to ask a grad student question again. Um, oxidative stress, I start looking at copper and different things like that. But if, if I'm talking about um, growth of the fetus, zinc comes into more play for me and the zinc finger proteins and transcription and all the stuff that like I know the big words for, but I don't completely understand the, you know, like the finer points. Um, you know, so would you be saying it's more of the the stress type nutrients or more of the growth like nutrients that are probably at the higher concentrations for them? It, it's again, the main thing that would differentiate is how much goes out in milk, the concentration in milk. Nothing goes out in milk in a dry cow. Well, I think relative, <laughs> to, <laughs> relative to that, good thing you're not, not a graduate student anymore. You might have a few more years to go. Um, <laughs> But like I said, for those, the, the oxidative, we, we'd assume a cow, a dry, well, we know a cow oxidized, burns a lot less oxygen than a lactating cow. So theoretically, her, her maintenance for these, for these antioxidant nutrients should, should be less than a, a lactating cow. Um, but we, we don't know, you know, for lactate, we don't know if what we feed for a lactating cow might be plenty anyway. I mean, there might be plenty excess to maintain all these antioxidant systems. So I'd be most worried. Zinc is very much deposited in, in muscle and fetus. It's also put in milk. So zinc is one that the, the requirements for the fetus is going to be close to the requirements for milk because of, of this. So that's one that's going to be higher, high in a dry cow. Copper, there's some in a fetus, but not a lot. But again, the maintenance requirement for copper is the biggest component component of copper uh, not milk not fetus so it's it's big for a dry cow manganese we don't really know we we know the fetus is very sensitive to low manganese more sensitive than the cow much more sensitive so that would suggest that these dry cows need more manganese to support the fetus and i i would that's one where i'm going to say there's no risk of toxicity I'm not going to be short. I'm going to feed enough manganese to this dry cow. I'm not going to worry about toxicity. If it costs me an extra penny or two a day, I don't care. It's worth knowing that fetus will develop properly. So, mm-hmm. 
Gentlemen, this has been fascinating, and uh, the time has flown by. Matt, I was surprised when you said that we were getting long in the time and look at the clock, and you're right. <laughs> so uh, Stephanie has just flicked the lights, which means uh, it is last call. So I am having another round, and Steph, let's get one for, for the, the boys as well. Uh, with that, though, let's uh, one final question for, for both of you. What's, what's one or two things that you would leave um, – for nutritionists, consulting nutritionists, making decisions at the dairy farm. Um, what two things can they take from this conversation tonight? I'll let Matt go first here on this. You know, so it's counterproductive for me to give you any good advice, um, but I'll give you good <laughs> advice because I have a cow's best interest in mind here. And and I'll use an example, and Bill and I discussed this yesterday when we, we talked. Um, copper is an extremely toxic nutrient um and, and and i'd like to think that we've made great strides in reducing the overfeeding and, and there's been overfeeding for many years but and that was primarily when it's copper sulfate based which is uh you know bill talked about the absorption coefficients the 0 0.4 to 0.6 percent and i think that these companies have made great strides in making a, a highly more bioavailable nutrient the days of feeding you know, maximum tolerable limit uh, for NRC in 2001 was 40. And I think Bill even mentioned in his talk, like, I wouldn't exceed 30 to 35. And there's good data that says, like, you can, like some uh, published data via vets that say those levels are still too toxic. We cannot overfeed copper if you're going to be feeding these high, highly bioavailable sources. And then, like, you also need to look at the species um, or, or breed species wouldn't be the correct term that you're feeding um you know jerseys accrete uh, liver or copper in their liver at a more appreciable amount than dairy uh, than holstein cows or other breeds um it, it's it's dangerous um and it's it's a great way to end uh, what could be a promising career for nutritionists and and so like i stress to everybody for the industry themselves um you know let, let's let's take a hard look at copper where we're at what nutrients we're feeding what what types of nutrients we're feeding and uh let's just let's just end the headaches um the other thing is is and and this was a a very promising note that i took from bill's lab is like the overfeeding is, is excessive um so and not every herd is the same like let's you, you can't you can't view one herd the same as the other. Uh, trace mineral nutrition needs to be treated like crude protein, like starch, and like all the other nutrients that we feed in a herd. Like every herd is different, every situation is different. And I don't care if they're neighbors. Um, so we need to quit doing this as a, as a as a catch-all nutrient, and we need to look at this um, based on situational um, circumstances and awareness. I'd like to just follow up on one thing Matt said. Um, people think selenium is the most toxic mineral we feed. Copper is the most toxic mineral we feed. And when you define toxicity relative to requirement, you can get toxicity at one and a half times requirement for copper. Selenium has to be at least 10 times. So we, we worry so much about selenium, it's, it's copper. The other, the other thing here I'd like to mention, this was brought up, is don't, don't forget water. 
I think it should be a standard. You don't need nearly as many water samples as silage and, and hay samples, but once or twice a year, get water. Hopefully the nutritionist looks at it and say, boy, this is good water, puts it in a file and he's done. But if it's not, there's some, some things we can't do about, you know, because of water treatment, some things we're stuck with. But if it's you know, high in sodium, I'm going to pull some salt out of the diet. If it's high in sulfur, I'm going to be very hesitant to feed distillers. So there's things you can you can do do with if you know. So I, I urge people to make that a standard practice. And again, not every week, not every month. Uh, my standard recommendation is summer and winter, and that's enough. Well, gentlemen, this has been a joy. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed the time tonight. As I said before, it flew by. Bill, we're going to hate to see you go, uh, but you know the future's bright. You've left a legacy in young men like Matt. Uh, Matt, you're obviously a, a rising star. I've enjoyed getting to know you, uh, enjoyed the time we had spending together tonight. So guys, I appreciate it. And thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, I'd also like to thank our loyal listeners for stopping by once again here at the exchange to sit with us just for a while. If you like what you heard, please remember to drop us a five-star rating on the way out. And remember, you can get a really cool t-shirt, uh, just by, um, Taking a screenshot, sending it to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Please remember to uh, include your uh, address and size, and we'll get that off to you. Our scientific conversations continue on the Real Science Lecture Series of webinars. Visit balchemanh.com slash real science to see upcoming events and past topics. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. Mm-hmm.